welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. You ever tried to quit something? It's hard, right? Whether you would call it an unhelpful habit or a bad habit or a compulsion or even a full-blown addiction, it is hard to quit something. Maybe people are trying to get you to quit. They know about it. Maybe they don't know about it. Maybe they don't think it's a big deal, but you know it is. Maybe you're trying to quit staying up so late. Maybe you're trying to quit being on your device so much. Maybe you're trying to stop eating too much or eating certain kinds of food, or maybe you're trying to quit smoking or something like that. It is hard. And the reason it's hard is physiologically, your body doesn't want to. I mean, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but... Um, basically, we, we get into habitual behaviors because they, we get some sort of pleasure from them in some way. And when we try to quit, the limbic system of the brain, which controls kind of the fight, flight, or freeze response, um, thinks and perceives our attempt to quit as a threat. Oh, no, no, we need this. Don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. It kicks into fight, flight, or freeze and says, no, no, quitting is a threat to our existence. And so it's really hard to do that. Why do I bring this up? <laughs> Some of you came to church to forget that. Uh, because we're in a series uh, that we are calling Money Talks, conversations with Jesus that could change your bottom line. And the fact is, this is true for all of us in some way. We all have unhealthy, unhelpful, or straight up bad habits, or even full-blown addictions when it comes to money. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago at the beginning point how money means different things to different people. It can mean identity. It can mean security. It can mean happiness. It can mean control. And when it means something important to us, it is very easy to subtly develop compulsive uh, thoughts, actions, and attitudes towards our money that become hard to change, hard to quit, hard to break. The habit of worrying about your money is a hard habit to break. The habit of shopping a lot uh, is a hard habit to break, even if you're just perusing, even if you're just like looking at the Canadian Tire catalog when it comes out, or you go on realtor.ca on a regular basis, or you're looking at cars on a, hey, I'm not gonna buy, I'm just looking. That itself can be a habit that's hard to break. It's hard to stop the habit of fighting with your spouse about money. It's hard to stop thinking about the next vacation or the next planned purchase. It's hard to stop overworking or working more overtime to make more money. <laughs> Do I need to go on, right? There's so many different ways that our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions about money can become compulsions, can become unhelpful, unhealthy, or full-on bad habits. And the problem with this is that when things, let's just say like money, wealth, or possessions, when things start to occupy more and more of our thoughts, start to grab more and more of our affections and our desires, and start to inform and direct more and more of our choices, we sort of know that's not a good thing. Like, we sort of, like I don't need to tell you, and we're like, yeah, no, that's not good, or I'm trying to keep that under wraps, or how come I can't stop that, or someone else wants me to stop that, why can't we stop? <laughs> How do you break a habit around thinking or having an attitude or an action towards money, wealth, and possessions? Well, if we went to Instagram, you might hear, just, just try. Like, try hard. Just stop. You know, make your, just do it, man. Just get it done. Just stop thinking about it. Just read one of the next Navy SEAL books or listen to one of those podcasts. Just get it done. Willpower. 
Um, maybe others be like, no, just plan. You need a plan. Seven steps to three easy, whatever, five days to 30 days to get clean from your money or whatever it is. You just need a plan. Or perhaps sort of the neo-Buddhist or, um, you know, yoga advice would be just detach. Meditate. You need time to detach yourself from your, just don't, just want stuff less. Just meditate away from desire. That's sort of the heart of Eastern meditation is to detach ourselves from pain and pleasure. And so that can be one. Just, just detach. Or let's put a cross around Instagram and say, oh, just pray. Just have faith. Just trust God and he will free you from this addiction. Now, None of those things are bad, you know, to try, to plan, to detach, to trust God. And they work until they don't work. Or maybe you're like, oh, they work for other people. They don't work for me. Or they just, the work, the solution doesn't last. I'm back in the same habit again. How do we truly get free from the compulsive attitudes and actions and thoughts about money and wealth and possessions? Well, <laughs> We have a conversation with Jesus, or we listen in on a conversation that Jesus had with some of his followers, his friends, his apprentices, who we are as well. And even if you're in the room and say, hey, I'm not an apprentice of Jesus. I'm not following Jesus. I'm not sure about Jesus. Great. You could listen and just say, hey, would this help? Like maybe you start to realize that what he says is true because it actually works. And maybe you've tried a bunch of other stuff and you're like, okay, I'm willing. I'm game. I have some attitudes and actions and compulsions that I don't like. I want to change. Okay, Jesus, I'm listening. The conversation we're going to listen to, uh, listen in on with Jesus today is actually one that on the surface doesn't seem like it's about money, but it is the key. I think personally, just my own experience, it is the key. It may not work for you, but I'm telling you it has worked for me. It's worked for many people I know. It's the key to getting free from some of the habits and compulsions that we have with respect to money. Now, before I read it for you, before you hear it, I want to set up the context. So it occurs in the middle of one of the biographies of Jesus written by Luke, um, who was a doctor and he was Greek, um, didn't grow up as a, as a Jew. Um, and he's writing about the story of Jesus. Man, some of the conversations that he had heard from eyewitnesses who heard these conversations. And this particular conversation starts with the religious leaders around Jesus kind of throwing some shade at him or angry with him. See, Jesus had begun to gain sort of notoriety and popularity and, um, and just crowds everywhere he went because, and as a religious teacher, as a rabbi, even though he had no formal rab rabbinic training, he was not trained or wasn't the son of a rabbi or religious teacher. He was the son of a carpenter. Um, that's why often you hear him refer to, oh, where did he come from? He came from this town. He had no religious credentials, and yet the people flocked to him because he talked about God, and he talked about them, and he talked about the world in ways that were like, oh my gosh, we can understand this. You know, we didn't go to rabbi school or Torah school, but we understand this, man. And he is saying things that sound so true. He has such authority when he speaks. So more and more people are, are coming to hear this teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, and the religious leaders, the, the elite, and you'll see like the Pharisees, they weren't actually religious leaders by title. They were just people who followed. They were the one group of people that followed all the 639 laws. So they were considered very religiously upstanding, and they must be close to God because they follow all these, all these laws. They're able to keep them. And then you have teachers of the law and scribes, and they were the actual um, religious leaders by title. And they were not happy with Jesus. In part, they were just jealous. Um, but they said, like, you have behaviors and practices that don't line up with someone who supposedly represents God. 
For one, you spend so much time talking with and eating with all of these people who are sinners and tax collectors. You'll see there was a category of people that the religious people thought God would not want anything to do with these people. And here's this person who supposedly represents God spending all his time. And they would say, why? They're saying to the disciples, why do you spend so much time eating? Which and in that case, like eating with people, that wasn't just like, you know, you know, we had to get something done and we met in a Tim Hortons. This is like when you eat with people, you welcome them. You said you you expressed kinship. You're my brother. You're my sister. And they're like, you cannot do this with these kinds of people. And in response to that, Jesus tells this story. He says, imagine somebody had a um, hundred sheep and they lost one of them. And they, one of them wandered away. Well, the shepherd, like that's, it's not like, hey, this is Fluffy the Lamb is our family pet. It's like, no, that's money. <laughs> that's, that's worth something. It's one in a hundred. So we're going to go get it. And doesn't he go and find it? Yeah, and they're like, yeah, yeah, of course. And when he finds it, doesn't he celebrate with his friends? Like, let's have a party. Like, I found this sheep that was lost. Yes, for sure, yeah. Okay, well, now imagine there's a woman who lost one of 10 coins. And she looks everywhere in her house. She turn, lights a lamp, which would tell us that they had the house had no windows, which would mean this is a poor woman. She had 10 drachmas. Uh, drachma was a day's wage, and there was no bank. It wasn't like she had other stuff in savings. So that means Jesus is saying she's a poor person. All she has is 10 days worth of money to go, and she loses one. Now that's just one in 100. Now it's one in 10. Would she go look for the coin? 100%. And when she finds it, yes, yes, she found it, and she celebrates. She says, okay, yeah, they could kind of quantify the wealth, sort of about money, you know? One in 100, yeah, you go find the sheep. One in 10, yeah, you go find the coin. What if you lost a son? Jesus says. <laughs> and then he tells them this story. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this son packaged all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there, he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. 
and in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Maybe you're familiar with that story that was read. Maybe you've never heard it before. Um, it's commonly referred to as the prodigal son, uh, as in the son who left and then came home. The word prodigal means reckless spender. And so, of course, yes, the son is a reckless spender. Um, but more uh, often, we recognize that this story is about the father um, who represents God. And Jesus is trying to describe to his listeners what kind of heart God has, what kind of a person, how much compassion and love God has. And that's true. But you might be wondering, what does this story have to do with money other than like the son blew all the inheritance? But underneath this thing, and it's not visible at first, but as we look at it, this is absolutely a story told about money to people who were listening so that they could understand better about money. And I want to just kind of walk through it with you, explain one of the missing pieces that's not actually in the story that will help us understand, whoa, what is Jesus saying? And realize this is the key to getting free from the habitual, compulsive, addictive behaviors and thought patterns and actions that we have when it comes to our money. So I'm just going to walk through it. First, um, you have something that would be incomprehensible um, in a culture from the Near East, which is where you know Judaism was grounded in, but certainly even still in, in Greco-Roman first century world when Jesus is telling this story in verse 12, the, the younger son says to the father, I want my share of your estate now before you die, which was the height of disrespect and greed, right? It would be so shameful for a younger son because the older son was the one who would have gotten possibly more of the inheritance. But like basically to say, well, I, I can't wait. I wish you were dead, you know, like I, but I can't wait for that. I want your stuff now. And it's not like he would have had tons of money in the bank. What his what was coming to him was the estate that they were on, the house, the cattle or whatever. So the father would have had to liquidate some of his assets to pay out his son. And this would have been very visible to the people in the town that he was dealing with, maybe selling part of his property to, certainly to the extended family who all would have lived in the same area in the same neighborhood, possibly who worked for this landowner. And so it was so disrespectful to basically, I wish you were dead, make your father divest some of his in, 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 you know, wealth to pay you. And so the height of shame is Jesus' listeners would have been like, this is disgusting, and the greed. And then the story got, gets worse. <laughs> Verse 13, it says he left and he blows it all on wild living. We don't know all that means, but basically, and so like he didn't do something good with it. Not only did he waste all of it, but he did it as a God-fearing Jew to get involved in all kinds of things that would have been very um, offensive to his family and brought more shame as the word travels of like, look what this son of so-and-so's doing. And then Jesus says he ends up so bad that he's sitting um, feeding pigs, which pigs were unclean animals to Jews. So Jesus is adding to the the depth of scorn and shame on this man, but by on, on the son on extension to his family. <laughs> and so it says the son kind of goes, okay, I'm going to try to go home and like, maybe I'll work as a servant. And he, he thinks that's a good plan. But the, the people listening would have been like, what? You can't come home. 
And so it says in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw saw him coming. And the people would have been like, yeah, oh man, this kid's going to get his. And what they would have expected is the father saw him a long way off and he goes out to meet him. They would have expected maybe he would bring the older brother. He would have brought some extended family, maybe uncles. And what they would think is they should kill this son before he even gets within the property, right? An honor killing. You brought so much shame and dishonor on the family name, on the extended family. You've left um, your, your, your older brother to work the land. You abandoned, you blew all this inheritance. You have, the, you have the audacity to show your face. They would have killed him. Or at least say, no, no, no further. You cannot come back. You are gone. You are dead to us. And we find later, they, yeah, they kind of thought he was dead. But it's like, yeah, no, you're not coming back. <laughs> That's what they would have thought. Instead, the father runs to him, kisses him, embraces him, and he doesn't even let him finish the sentence about his plan to come back and be a servant. And maybe, you know, he's not, and he knows he's not, doesn't have the right to be a son anymore. The father starts yelling at home, get the robe and my ring and my son's home and let's have a party. It says they killed the fattened calf, which was the you know, the fattest calf. Um, but it was there, right? To, um, it's like if you were dry aging a whole bunch of beautiful steaks for when someone really important showed up or really important um, event, a wedding or something, a celebration. There's a celebration. It's a party. My son's home. Let's kill the fattening calf. Let's have a party. Which Jesus listened would have been like, what? Thankfully, the older brother has some sense. It says later on the day, he returns to the field and <laughs> here's the party going on in the house. And he's like, what is going on? And the servant says, oh, didn't you hear your brother who was gone is returned home and your father has thrown a party for him. The older brother is livid. Are you kidding me? My younger brother who went and like took all of his inheritance and blown it all and he's come back now? And my father's killed the fattened calf and is having a party for him? Why is the son so upset? Well, he's angry probably with the shame that the uh, younger brother would have brought on the family, sticking him with all the rest of the work. But even more so, the son took, the younger son took all his half of the possessions and they are gone. So whose possessions are funding the party now? The older brother. Whose fattened calf was it that's killed now? the older brother. Not only did the younger brother blow his share of the fortune, he's now spending his older brothers and his older brother is livid. The father goes out to him and says, son, come in to the party. He's like, hey, don't worry. Like everything I have is yours. Don't worry about money and possessions. Come in. Your brother, your brother. We thought he was dead. He's alive. He's home. Come in. And the older brother refuses to come home. What's going on in this passage? Jesus in Luke 15 is mounting the tension of a story about lost things. He says to them, imagine, you know, like someone had a sheep, which is worth something, and one of the hundred disappeared. You'd go find it. Sure, that's worth going to find, right? And that's worth celebrating if you find it, right? They have a party after Okay, woman loses 10% of what, whatever she has, which is not much. She desperately needs to find it, right? So she looks, yes, that's worthy of looking for and then celebrating when you find, right? Well, what about a person? Jesus said, forget a sheep and a coin. What about a person? <laughs> is Jesus simply saying this to his audience? People 
are more important than things. People are more important than possessions. And we actually start to realize that this was a big issue. We go, oh yeah, I guess that's profound. No, the audience, Jesus listeners, in fact, the religious leaders and the Pharisees who had brought up this whole question in the beginning, why do you hang out with all these people? Why do you eat with them? Why do you celebrate with them? Like this repeated theme of celebration, having a meal. Why do you spend time with these people? Well, we realized that money was a big issue for these Pharisees and religious leaders. You know how we know? And this is actually a good um, practice for you when you're reading a piece of scripture and you're like, I don't quite understand this. First, figure out who's Jesus talking to or who's the conversation with, in this case, the Pharisees, and look at what's happening in the chapters before or the chapters after. If you read on after Luke 15, you get to Luke 16. That's not hard to understand. And Jesus tells two more stories, parables like this, about money. And you know what it says in Luke 16, 14, after he's talking about this, Luke 15, Luke 16. The Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all this and scoffed at him. Jesus was telling the stories in Luke 15, which all actually have to do with wealth and possessions under the surface, right? It isn't just about the Father's a reckless love for anyone, no matter what they've done, that he will welcome us home. That is true. But underneath is this thread that then gets talked about even more in Luke 16 because Jesus is talking to people who loved things and Jesus' whole point is love people, not things. People are more important to God than things, even though the religious leaders loved things. They loved their money. And here is the key, friends, listen. Here's the key to dealing with the compulsive, addictive, habitual thought patterns actions and behaviors that we have when it comes to money, wealth, and possessions. Here's the key. You cannot get rid of an affection or a love for something by just repressing it, by just saying, I shouldn't do this. You can't just try harder. You can't just plan. You can't just detach yourself from it. You can't just pray, God help me, God help me. The only way you get rid of one affection is with a stronger affection, right? To say it bluntly. How did you get over your first crush in grade six? Your next crush, <laughs> right? A stronger affection, more love for something else, not repressing desire, not detaching, not just trying harder, not just praying harder. You need a greater, stronger affection. The solution to not loving things is to love people more. That's Jesus' whole point. <laughs> is that is how we get free. For those who love money and love things, and we don't like to use that word. Nobody says, oh yeah, I love money. I love possessions. I love my car, whatever. But when our thoughts are continually about money, whether the lack of it or getting more of it, when our plans are all, when our habits around shopping or perusing or browsing or thinking about or worrying about or fighting about or checking the retirement calculator again, when we're always doing that. Essentially, our mind and our heart and our decisions show that that's what we love. And the only way to break the habit and the power of loving things is to love people more. In fact, Jesus goes a step further, right? In every case of the lost thing in chapter 15, what happens at the end when they find it? They celebrate. They have a party. They host. 
In chapter 14, if you read right before this chapter, Jesus talks about a banquet and showing hospitality or welcome and a meal to others. In chapter 16, he tells two parables about using your wealth to bless other people or to love other people. And here's the thing, here's the step further. It's not just about loving people more than things. It's about using things to love people. <laughs> That's what our relationship with money and wealth and things is supposed to be. We use them to love people. We don't love things and use people to get promoted or to get better or whatever. We use the things. We use the wealth. We use the possessions to love people. We realize and we see that, and when we start to see that every dollar Every possession, every bit of wealth we have is something that can be used to bless and love and serve and care for other people. When we see it that way, it totally changes how we think about our wealth and our money and our possessions. And we get free from the compulsive, addictive, habitual thought patterns and behaviors around what we own, what we don't own, what we have, what we want to have. This is how we break the habit. We use things to love people. We learn to love people. And the more and more we love them, the less and less power things and wealth and possessions have over us, right? When you learn to worry more about people, about their situations, about their cares, about the latest need that you heard, you start to worry less about you and your life and your money. When you begin to plan and scheme for how you can free up more money to help this person or that person or give to this or this need or host people, when you, th then you start to scheme less about trying to get more for yourself. When you start, start to spend more time with people, more time hosting people, more time investing yourself and your thoughts into the lives of other people, you have less time for yourself to think about yourself, to think about your wealth, to think about this or that, to think about things. The more you're thinking about people, this is how it works. And so here's my question. Who is the who for you? Right? A specific person. It does no good to say, well, we're supposed to love the world or love everyone or be a loving person. <laughs> right? Jesus moves from the big one in a hundred to the one in 10 to like one, a son. He moves from the general to the specific, from possessions to a person. Right? That's the progression of Luke 15. The sheep, the coin, a son. A hundred, ten to one. When the father's pleading with the older son to come and he says, it's your brother. You're this is the person we are meant to love right here, right now. So I just want to literally take a moment right now. And if it helps, you can close your eyes. But just ask Jesus this question. Yeah, who is the who for me? Who Am I meant to love? Someone in your life that God may be calling you to notice, prioritize, to pay attention to, or to persist in loving. Just ask him, Lord, who's that person? Maybe there's a name that's coming to mind right now. Maybe a face. Maybe an unlikely one. You're like, them? Him? Her? It may not be someone you know well. God is asking you to notice them. To prioritize. To 
pay attention to them or to persist in loving them? Who is that who for you? And then what do you own or possess or have that could be a blessing to them? How could you use your stuff, your things, your wealth, your house, your whatever, your car, your opportunities to be a blessing to them? Maybe this is a helpful question. What way do they need to be celebrated or hosted or blessed? Right? This continual theme of hospitality and blessing was about welcoming people in to validate and honor and bless and care for people that the rest of the world had pushed away and said, you don't deserve blessing. You don't deserve honor. Maybe there are people you think like, who is blessing? Who in their life is actually loving them or caring for them or ever having them over for a meal? We have so many new people coming into our country, so many new people coming into our cities. And I've heard stories of people inviting someone over and they said, I've been in this country for two years. I've never been in another person's home. What does it mean to bless, to celebrate, to host? Or maybe this, what planned purchase or funds could be redirected away from you and towards this person, towards someone else? You were planning on buying this. You were saving this. You've been shopping for this. You were going to spend it anyway. Why not spend it on someone else? Friends, these are the choices and decisions and the little things that begin to slowly free us from the addictions and the compulsions. I want to just read for you as we close just a story um, that a friend of mine told me was going on in his life, and I asked him if I could share it, and he wrote it down. He didn't include any names or specifics, and you'll you'll see why because it's a bit of a an ongoing live uh, situation. But it's it's an it's a circumstance, something unfolding in their lives that they realized, wait, this is someone we are meant to love. This is someone we are meant to use whatever we have to bless and love. Here's what he says. Through some friends from my church, my wife and I learned that there was a little guy who was in the psych ward in our local hospital. He had been in and out of the foster care system and a recent breakdown in his foster home combined with some significant struggles led him to being admitted into the psych ward. Our friend wondered if we knew anyone in the church or around the community who might be interested in fostering this boy. In the past, we had been open to the idea of fostering, but it hadn't been on our radar for many years. We said we would keep our ears open, but certainly at least be willing to visit him while he was in the hospital. Our first visit was a bit strange, to be honest. It's hard to see a nine-year-old in the hospital under any circumstances, but this was a scenario we hadn't experienced before. Even though we had raised kids of our own, we felt out of our comfort zone and unsure how to approach this visit. It ended up going okay, and we agreed to keep connecting and doing what we could to support this boy. Fast forward over the course of several months, we continued to visit him in the hospital, eventually having day passes and some extended time with him. This included fun trips around the city, days swimming and play dates with a few friends. By this point in time, we were pretty sure Jesus was inviting us to open up our home to this boy in a more permanent fashion. I don't think it was a right or wrong choice where we could make an indirect decision and betray our apprenticeship to Jesus. Instead, it really felt like an invitation where Jesus was putting a need in front of us and we had the chance to make the best decision we could. After many, many hours and days of trying our best to consider all the implications that come with making a decision of this magnitude and talking to a small group of trusted friends, 
we decided to welcome this little boy into our home. It's hard to know exactly what to say about all this, but having him in our lives has been both incredibly rewarding and incredibly difficult. His needs and the scars he carries are many and complicated, but we see God bringing healing slowly over time. As we do our best to love and care for him, creating stability, safety, and support, we're also being changed and shaped. As we are learning to extend ourselves for his benefit, Jesus is shaping us and working in our lives too. I guess that's what other-centered love is all about. There is a choice and a cost, but there is a beauty and richness that comes only as God works in and through us. We believe God helped us become aware of a need and an opportunity to help. There was an invitation to love and care for a little boy who had experienced more struggle than we could possibly know, and we had the choice to get involved. We chose to say yes and step out without fully knowing the cost or all the implications. We're definitely not out of the woods, and some days we still can't believe we are in this spot. But God is good and kind and loving, giving us what we need as we go, and gentle correction when we get it wrong. More adventure ahead. This is a story of a family using what they have, what they were given, a house, a home, an opportunity to love and bless someone else who needed it. Now, it'd be easy to look at them and go, whoa, that's a huge step, and it is. But from what I know of them, that big step was preceded by a whole bunch of little steps over the course of many years, as one thing leads to another, that every small act to choose to use things to love another person, every small act to choose to bless another person, every small act to think, to think about, to worry about, to be concerned with someone else instead of something else, begins to free you and I. And those small things have a big impact over time as you and I begin to get more and more free from the compulsions and the behaviors and the addictions around wealth and possessions and more and more free to love.